It's really good to see all of you this morning. Uh, uh, thankful for your presence here and the uh, as we gather to worship the name of Jesus, love love that praise. This uh, past week, uh, um, I, I like the the analytic part of of sports, and and so the draft is is an interesting time. I like watching the NFL draft and following that because of uh, just what it means from measurables, the metrics of these different players. And on Thursday. Uh, uh, the number one dra- uh, pick of, of the entire draft was announced, and it was Miles Garrett from uh, Texas A&M University. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Gig him. Uh, and, and so that was exciting. That was exciting, yeah, uh, because my daughter also graduated from A&M. Uh, downside is he has to play in Cleveland, so, you know. <laughs> no, he's going to help make them great again. Well, great, but... Um, but it, it, all that to say, there is a point to all this. When, when those picks are announced, the crowd that's there, just thousands and thousands of people, they go crazy over these things that have no impact on eternity. And so I really appreciated hearing you raise your voice in worthy praise to our Lord and Savior uh, as, as Tim led us in that, that element of worship. So uh, much, much better than any number one pick in the NFL draft. Well, today we're continuing our series, The Pursuit of God's Heart. It's our desire that through this look of da- uh, at the life of David, we might be challenged to not be incremental Christians, but to be women and men who passionately pursue the heart of God. To not be incremental Christians, that is, <clears throat> those who, who would settle, those who would settle for less than what is theirs uh, through, through the gift of God, those who, who aren't pursuing but are comfortable with the status quo and feeling perhaps in some sense that I've arrived or maybe in another that, that I can never get there from here. And, and uh, uh, so we're, we're talking about those who, who would passionately pursue the heart of God, to, to be those who cannot be content with a shallow faith, but who pursue those things which God most loves. So we heard last week from Pastor Crawford, David was such a man as that. David was a man who passionately pursued the heart of God to the point that God would then say of David that he is a man after my own heart. This morning, we're going to be looking at David's friendship with Jonathan, the son of Saul. And the way that it plays out, it's really a look at Jonathan's friendship with David. Jonathan kind of stands to the forefront in terms of this relationship. Uh, friendships can be difficult. And they can even be painful. For instance, have you ever been betrayed in a relationship? Have you ever had someone close to you violate your trust? For some of us, it's hard to trust others because of the way that we've been betrayed. When I was pastoring in Scotland, I developed a friendship with a man named David, and uh, David moved from uh, uh, Manchester, England, up to the highlands of Scotland, and uh, he, he and I began to hang out together. He joined the church. I began to invest in him as a young student in the Word of God. But even beyond this discipling relationship that we had, uh, there, there was a, a, a rich friendship that was growing. We, we, uh, we spent time with each other's families, and golf is a big deal over there, and, and, and so we literally spent hours walking the, the courses there in Scotland, uh, not just hitting the ball, but more importantly than that, uh, just, just sharing our hearts before God, investing in one another. David became worship pastor at our church there in the Highlands, and uh, he also became uh, leader of our small group. And when I thought about our small groups as the pastor and the shepherd of, of, of that body there in the highlands of Scotland, as I thought about his small group, I had no worries, I had no concerns. 
With the other small groups, I would rotate the groups I would go and I'd visit just to be a presence and to be an encouragement. But with David, because he was a man after my own heart, I didn't have to worry about that. He was there. Everything was fine. I could, I could just uh, release that to him. So you can imagine my dismay, my shock, and even my, my, my pain when I learned that David was taking his small group astray. Then in the pursuit of knowing more about God, he had gotten on the internet and had, had found this cultic site and began to incorporate its teachings within a small group. And even worse than that, the leader of that cult came over and David let him stay in his home and they continued to poison that group. When I found out about it, it was as if someone had run a knife into my heart because this was my friend. This is someone with, with, with whom I had broken bread. This is someone with, with, with whom I, uh, I had shared my greatest confidences. And they had been betrayed. Even after 17 years, I was thinking about this yesterday, after 17 years, it still stings to think about that. I, I grieve as a shepherd for what was happening in that group and the people who made it up, but, but personally as a friend, it stings. You experience that kind of betrayal. The tendency is to never go back there again. I'm not going to do that again. And yet that's the essence of our Christian faith. It's built on relationship. When we look in Genesis chapter 1 and God creating everything and he gets to that, that last creative day, the sixth day, and he creates man and woman in his own image, he created them for relationship, relationship with each other, relationship with him. We see that highlighted in Genesis 2, when uh, God took Adam down, and amongst all the animals, he could tell that there was no suitable companion for him. And we love our dogs and our cats, but they can never replace a person in our life. And so because of that, even if we've been betrayed, even if we've been hurt, we, we still diligently have to seek after those things which make us friendly to be a friend and to have friends. We see those elements laid out today in our passage in 1 Samuel chapter 18, 1 to 4. 1 Samuel 18, 1 to 4. If you go ahead and turn there with me, we're going to read about this beautiful friendship that took place between Jonathan and David. So beginning in 1 Samuel chapter 18 and verse 1. Our text says, as soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the son of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. So in, in these four verses, in these four verses, we learn a lot about the nature of relationships. When we look at this passage, it teaches us much of what we need to know about what it means to be a friend and how to be a friend and receive friendship. We see that friendship requires vulnerability in this passage. Friendships require vulnerability. We see that friendships require commitment. Friendships require commitment. Third, we see that friendships require humility. Friendships require humility. Three of the main ingredients of friendship are vulnerability, commitment, and humility. 
And, and we see this just played out in these four verses. So there was much for Jonathan to admire about David and this one day's worth of exposure that he had had of him. When you look at the Bible and you look at 1 Samuel 17 and it goes into 1 Samuel 18, that, that's one connected passage. It's one connected story, if you will. It's not 1 Samuel 17, David slays Goliath, and then it picks up again in chapter 18, days, weeks, months, even years later. No, it's all happening on that same day. As our pastor laid out before us last week, uh, uh, David was this young shepherd boy. He was the least of Jesse's sons, as we uh, saw before that. Uh, When when uh, Samuel, uh, under the leadership of God, went to anoint the next king of Israel because of Saul's rebellion and failure, God had told Saul Saul through Samuel that God was going to call to himself someone after his own heart. That Saul and his heirs would not remain on the throne of Israel, that God had chosen someone. And so Samuel goes to Bethlehem, to the house of Jesse, and he goes through all of Jesse's sons until he comes to the least of the sons, David. And even at that, he had to be provoked to, to do that and ask Jesse, is there not any other? Is there not any other? Well, there's David, but he's out tending the sheep. He, he was unimportant. He was uninvited. But he came and he was the one whom God wanted to give the throne of Israel to. A little bit later, battle is arranged between the Philistines and the army of Israel. And the army of Israel is quaking because of the giant who was a champion of that army of the Philistines that stood before them. He would go down into the valley and raise his voice at the armies of Israel and challenge them. And challenge their God as he defied the God of Israel. The text records that they would shake, but they would not respond. Here comes David, sent on the errand by his dad to take food, provision, bread and cheese to his brothers, as was the custom of that day. And Probably even more than that, Jesse wanted to report, how are my boys doing? Are they okay? Is everything all right? Are they they safe? Are they doing well? So as David arrives on the scene, he arrives just in time to hear Goliath come down and do his thing. And the heart of David was stirred with anger, with righteous anger as, as he cried out, is there not a cause? Is there not a cause? How dare this Gentile, this infidel, how dare he defy the armies of God? So ultimately, as we know, he ran into battle against this giant, this young, unproven David going into battle against this, not just a giant, this behemoth, but a man of battle from his youth slew him army of Israel was excited. They were energized. They were no longer afraid. Army of the Philistines were afraid, having seen their champion slain by, to them, what was a little boy. So Israel pursues and destroys that army and comes back and begins to loot the camp. So for David, he takes the sword of Goliath and he chops off his head with it. It was gruesome days back then. Chops off the head to display it, his victory. It also tells us that he took his armor and the sword of Goliath, and he took that for himself. 
And it says again in verse 18, as soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, because Saul is inquiring, whose boy is this? Whose son is this? Who has done this mighty deed? What's his pedigree? Which of my valiant generals has he descended from? Uh, He's just the boy, the son of Jesse, your servant. So David gave report to Saul, and as soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, it says, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul, and Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. So there was much to admire about David from Jonathan in this one day's exposure to hear his faith in the Lord, to see that faith in action as he went forth and slew the giant Goliath. And his heart was knit to David. David had demonstrated that he was full of faith in the God of Israel. Based on words that Jonathan would share with David later, Jonathan seemed to be the same way. They, They had a common faith and boldness in the God of Israel. David was a mighty warrior as he had demonstrated in the slaying of Goliath a short time previously. And we know that Jonathan was also a mighty warrior who overcame great odds to win surprising victories. Both David and Jonathan exercised a bold faith that took prayerful risk. Now we could, and maybe someday we should, camp out on just that piece, that their boldness was, was born of the Lord, their, born of their faith, and so they would take bold risk. They would exercise a bold faith, taking prayerful risk. David was, in fact, not just a man after God's own heart, but as we read here, David was a man after Jonathan's own heart. He could identify with him. That is common belief. And that warrior's mentality. Yet even with that, their friendship was an unlikely one at face value. They were of different tribes. Jonathan was of the tribe of Benjamin and David was of the tribe of Judah. They were of different generations. It's believed that Jonathan may have been as old as 40 years old. And as Pastor Crawford has already shared, uh, David was less than 18. He wasn't old enough to serve in the army yet. So he could have been no more than 17. There, There was in all likelihood a 20 to 25 year age gap between Jonathan and David. They were of different socioeconomic classes. David was simply a poor shepherd. A poor shepherd. He was the youngest of Jesse's sons. If there was anything to inherit from the family, it would never make it as far as him. He had no standing. He had no wealth. But on the other end, there was Jonathan, who was the presumptive heir of the throne of Israel, even raised in wealth. Whereas David would have learned basics of language and what have you. Jonathan would have had tutors almost from his birth. Whereas David learned everything he knew about war from protecting his sheep in the field, Jonathan would have had warriors teaching him the intricacies of battle, strategy, and war. David was in poverty in essence, and Jonathan in wealth. And yet despite this, Despite the seeming barriers to relationship, our text tells us that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. We see in Jonathan vulnerability. Vulnerability. See, that's vulnerability. In order to be loved, Jonathan had to love. 
It's the power of friendship is found in vulnerability because of the difference in their ages, because of the difference in their status. Jonathan was taking a risk and choosing to make himself vulnerable to David to begin a relationship, a friendship with him. There would be those in, 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 uh, who would counsel him and, and say, whoa, this guy's beneath you. In order to engage in relationship, Jonathan made himself vulnerable, as must you and I if we are going to have friends, intimate friends. The power of friendship is found in vulnerability. Jonathan was willing to risk, as was David, in order to have this friendship. In verse 3 we read, Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. Jonathan made a covenant with David, a, a pledge of friendship, if you will. As adults, we hardly do this anymore. May, probably almost never uh, uh, outside of marriage. In marriage, we, we make a pledge. In marriage, we, we, we have a covenant. In marriage, we make a commitment to, to love until death us do part. But, but in terms of relationships beyond that, we, we don't formalize those very much. But we probably did when we were children. When, when you were a child, was, was it like it was with me? Did, did you have a best friend? And, and, and chances are, if you did, that, that you even made commitments to that best friend. You're my best friend, and you're going to be my best friend forever. As Forrest Gump would say about Bubba, my bestest best friend. When, when I was young, we did even more than that. I mean, there, there were fake friendships and manipulative relationships that, that, that you have. Hey, I'll, I'll be your friend if you'll let me play with your ball, Right? Hey, 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 I'll let you be my friend if, if, if you'll give me that. But there were some friendships that were, that were better than that. Our, our bestest, best friend. And where I lived, that meant that if you had a bestest, best friend, you made a covenant. You made a vow. You made a, a commitment. We take our pocket knives, right? We take our finger. Obviously, this is pre-HIV days. <laughs> but but you'd, you'd, you'd prick your finger, cut your finger, as would your friend, and you would co-mingle your blood. And now we're blood brothers. We're not just bestest best friends. We're blood brothers. That was a commitment. That was a covenant. That was a vow. I wonder why we don't do that as adults anymore. I mean, not, not the cutting part, because that's silly, but, but why don't we make these commitments to each other anymore? In that covenant, we are saying that we are committed to being friends, and not just friends, but best friends. That my, my blood brother, I, I, I had his back. His fights now became my fights, and his enemies became my enemies. And when I was in trouble, I, I knew that my blood brother, this one with whom I had a covenant, would be there for me, that he would have my back. When things got rough, when things got hard, that my friend would be there for me. It's the kind of relationship that requires vulnerability. It's the kind of relationship that requires a, a covenant. It was the kind of relationship that Jonathan and David had. Jonathan made a covenant with David that said, in essence, I'm committed to this friendship. I've got your back. I've got your back. And we would see this play out. We will see this played out throughout the life of David and Jonathan's relationship. That Jonathan had David's back. When Saul 
Jonathan's father sought to kill David. Jonathan had his back and challenged him and said, why will you sin in this? David's done you no harm. He stood up to his father, even at risk of his own life. He had his back. He had his back. The power of friendship is found in vulnerability, and the power of friendship is found in commitment, even when it costs you something to stand beside your friend, even when it costs you something. Verse 4 says, And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him, and he gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. Now, this is interesting to me in two ways. Jonathan taking off his armor and, and his robe and, and, and his, uh, uh, his weaponry and giving it to David. So first off, remember First uh, Samuel 17 and 18, this is one day that these things are happening. And on that one day, we actually find three armors, right? We find three armors. First, as David is preparing to go up against the giant Goliath, he's met with Saul and Saul says, you can't go unarmed. Here, take my armor. So that's the first armor, the armor of Saul. And then secondly, as, we, uh, as I shared a moment ago, after David had triumphed over Goliath, what did he do? He took his armor. And now thirdly on this day, the third armor, Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him, gave it to David and his armor, and even his sword and his bow and his belt. There were three armors on the day that David killed Goliath. There was the armor of Saul, the king's armor, the king's armor. David wouldn't wear it. David wouldn't wear it. David would not yet become king until Saul had died. This was not his armor yet to wear. Then the second armor was Goliath's armor. Goliath's armor. David couldn't wear it because it was the armor of the world. So the armor of Saul was the armor of the king. The armor of, of Goliath was the armor of the world. And he couldn't wear it. He was armored in the righteousness of God that day. And then there was a the third armor, the armor of Jonathan. That was the heir's armor. That was the heir's armor. David would wear it because he was the heir to the throne of Israel. So right here in 1 Samuel 17 and 18, you've got your own Goldilocks story. First armor, not, not, not good. Second armor, not good. Third armor, just right. Just right. So that's, that's one of the interesting points that, that arises out of that. But the second one is, is akin to it. In, that in the giving of this armor by Jonathan, there was something that Jonathan was communicating to David and to all those who would see David wearing this armor and this robe. Jonathan stripping himself of his outer garments and weapons is a significant move. Jonathan was the firstborn son of Saul, the presumptive heir to the throne of Israel. We know from our study, however, that God had anointed David as heir due to Saul's rebellion. But the robe, the armor, the sword, the bow, and belt were all the trappings of the prince of Israel. And by giving them to David, by giving these things to David, Jonathan was humbling himself in acknowledgement of God's will for his friend. Do you remember in Genesis, the study uh, of, of Jacob? And Jacob, um, who was the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, uh, Jacob had sons, multiple sons. But amongst all of his sons, he had one who was a standout, one who was his favorite. That was his son, Joseph. His son, Joseph. Joseph was the son, the only son he had, uh, 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 one of the only sons he had from his wife, Rachel, his favorite wife. In the account of Joseph's life, you, you see uh, uh, Jacob making a coat for, for his son, Joseph. And he put the coat on Joseph, and Joseph went and shared it with his brothers, and his brothers despised him for it. Now understand, his brothers didn't despise him because dad made Joseph a new jacket. 
They despised him because it was the robe of inheritance. It was a robe of inheritance. He had many brothers who were older than him who should have been entitled to Jacob's things. But in this robe, in this robe, Jacob is saying, Joseph is my heir. This robe, this robe that Jonathan is divesting himself of is the robe of the heir of the throne of Israel. And by giving David his armor and his robe and his weapons, he's saying, I am acknowledging, I'm acknowledging that you are going to be king of Israel, not me. He was putting David's interest ahead of his own. He was humbling himself in acknowledgement of God's will for his friend, something that would drive Saul crazy. First Samuel 20 says in verse 30 and 31, Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman. And by the way, if you like to Christian cuss, here's a phrase for you. I mean, it's in the Bible, right? You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Jonathan understood that the power of friendship is found in humility. And though he had uh, these garments, they were of no value to him because he knew the plan of God for his friend. And so he humbly submitted not only to the will of God, but, but he submitted ultimately to David as his rightful ruler by giving him these robes of office. A a, a friend is one who puts your interest ahead of their own. A a, a friend is one of you, I hope, who puts the interest of your friend above their own. We we see this being played out in the life of David and Jonathan and their friendship. We we see the power of friendship found in vulnerability. They, they, They had to be willing to be vulnerable, to take risk in order to be friends because of all that was involved, including the fact that Jonathan would not inherit the throne of Israel. They had to be committed in order to be friends. They made a covenant. They made a commitment that that I've got your back. But the power of friendship is also found in humility. Humility, putting another's needs ahead of one's own. We see this again in 1 Samuel 23, verses 15 to 18, if you want to just flip over a couple of pages. 1 Samuel 23. Verses 15 to 18. Our text there says that David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horish, and Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horish and strengthened his hand in God. And isn't that great? We'll read a bit more in just a second. But isn't that great that Jonathan went, and what did he do? He strengthened his hand, David's hand, in God. And he said to him, do not fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, also knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. Vulnerability, commitment, humility, it's all in play again in in, in this passage. It's all displayed again in this passage. Despite the risk to his own life, Jonathan finds David in the wilderness and strengthens his hands in the Lord. 
He encourages him in the promises of God. So just to give you some background of what's happening here, anyone who would be a friend of David was putting their life on the line. Anyone who was an ally of David was at risk of losing their life. As David fled from Saul, he went to Nob, the town of Nob, where the priests were. And from them, he received the sword of Goliath and some bread, and he left. There was a man at Nob named Doag the Edomite. He was a shepherd. He was over all of Saul's herds. And he saw David there, and he reported to Saul and said, Hey, I saw David amongst the priests. And ultimately, Saul concluded that the priests were in alignment and rebellion against him. They were in alignment with David and rebellion against himself, Saul. And so he went down to the priest and he challenged them and they proclaimed their innocence and he had them all put to the sword. It did not pay to be the friend of David. It did not pay to be the ally of David. Your life was at risk. And so what does Jonathan, the son of Saul, do? He puts his life on the line to go and to seek out David in the midst of the wilderness, in the midst of what was one of the low points of David's life. Prior to Jonathan getting to David, David had gone on uh, uh, in battle against the Philistines. They had set upon a city called Kela. And David and his men rescued Kela from the Philistines. He was looking for a retreat that offered a little bit better comfort, perhaps, protection, perhaps, than what the wilderness did. And so he had thoughts of staying there with them. But he inquired of God and said, God, will these people betray me? And the answer was yes. A people whom he had just delivered would be willing to turn him over to Saul that they might not die. Betrayal. Betrayal. David was in a low point. Whom did he have? Where could he turn? In the midst of this low point comes Jonathan, his friend to encourage him in the Lord. Uh, uh, I put a note to myself in my sermon from something that came out in the first service. When we look at David in this low point of his life, we look at David in this low point of his life, Jonathan came to him and he strengthened his hands in the Lord by pointing out the promises of God to him. David, my, my dad's not going to find you. Da- David, you, you're not going to die. and You're going to be king of Israel. He, he strengthened his hands in, in, in the Lord by, by pointing him to God, by pointing him to the promises of God. Now, we, we have this, this culture or this concept uh, too, too many places and too many times in Western Christianity that, that the Christian life doesn't involve suffering. That there's not going to be difficult times in our life. That there's not going to be valleys uh, that, that we walk through where it feels like everyone is against us. But that's counter to the teaching of the Bible. When we, when we think about Jesus himself, it says in Hebrews 5 that he learned obedience through suffering. When, when we uh, think about Jesus towards the end of his life, as he's getting ready to go to the cross, he, he, he desired more than anything to have uh, uh, friends who would be there for him. As he went to the Garden of Gethsemane, he, he, he took Peter and James and John and he asked them to be in prayer with him as he went a little bit further ahead to wrestle with what was coming up. This taking on, this embracing of the wrath of God for the sins of man. He had a need in his, 
and the struggle of his life to have friends there. But even Jesus suffered. Jesus said in John 16, in John 16, that in this life, in this world, you will have suffering. You'll have trouble. And yes, he says, but be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. But just understand, Christian, that sometimes God's plan for you looks a lot like suffering. God's plan for David was that he would be king of Israel, but not yet. There's a season through which he must walk and a seasoning. I was sharing with our staff last Wednesday, Paul and Silas and their missionary journey, the second missionary journey. They're trying to share the gospel in different places, and the text tells us that, that God kept them from going there. The Spirit of God prevented them from going into Asia, prevented them from going to other places that they were seeking to go. But then one night, Saul had, or Paul had a vision of a Macedonian man saying, come, come, come. And so they went. So God led them to Macedonia, where they ended up in the city of Philippi, a Roman colony, where they were seized ultimately, beaten with rods, their clothes ripped off of them, put into a prison, and not just in a prison so that they might not escape, put in the inner prison, and fastened into stocks. Why were they there? Because God led them there. God led them there. Why? For the purposes of the gospel. At midnight, despite their suffering, as they were raising their voices in praise to God, an earthquake shook the jail. The foundations were rocked, the doors were opened, their bonds were released. The Philippian jailer who had been charged to keep them knew his own life was on the line if they escaped, so he was just going to make it quick and painless and do it himself. When they cried out and said, do yourself no harm, we're all still here. And subsequently, that jailer and all of his household, his family, servants, accepted Christ and were baptized. The earthquake that loosed them from their bonds wasn't to loose them from their bonds, but the Philippian jailer from his. God ordained their suffering. David's in the wilderness of Ziph, fleeing for his very life, crying out to God, God, why? Why? And Jonathan came to remind him of all the promises. Remember when God had Samuel anoint you? Remember the promise of God on your life? My dad's not going to find you. You're not going to die. You're going to be the king of Israel because God's ordained it. And so now you and I, as we are going through our own valleys, we open up the book of Psalms and we, we read the different Psalms. And because of, of what uh, uh, trial that David went through, we can be encouraged and have hope. And our friends come to us in the midst of our darkness and share these same things to encourage us. If our blessings are for the benefit of others, guess what? So are our sufferings. But don't walk through them alone. David had a Jonathan to come to him in the midst of his valley and to strengthen his hands in the Lord. And that's what friendship looks like. 
When you have a friend with whom you can be vulnerable and you have a friend and it's a committed friendship and you have a friend who's willing to be humble and you're willing to be humble and vulnerable and you're committed then you're able to strengthen one another's hands in the Lord. This world will have difficulties. Don't walk through them alone. Despite the risk to his own life, Jonathan finds David in the wilderness and he strengthens his hands in the Lord. He encourages him in the promises of God. Do you have friends in your life who exemplify this kind of attitude, this, these kinds of actions? Are you a friend who exemplifies this kind of attitude, these kinds of actions? I've learned the hard way that I cannot be the husband that I want to be, that I cannot be the father that I want to be, that I cannot be the pastor that I want to be, that I cannot lead the staff the way I want to lead the staff, that I cannot be the person whom God desires me to be, except I have friends in my life who exemplify these kinds of things. I want to be vulnerable in order to experience the power of friendship from others. The highlight of my week is when I'm meeting with my band of brothers so that we might encourage one another in the Lord. Up until recently, I met with a group of men, great men, godly men. And every morning, uh, every Tuesday morning, we'd get together at 6 a.m. to encourage one another in the Lord. Currently, I'm meeting with a group of men, great men, godly men. On a Monday morning, we get together to strengthen each other's hands in the Lord. And it's become the highlight of my week because it's in that time that I become a better pastor, a better father, a better follower, a better husband. Do you have that kind of community? Do you have that kind of relationship? Do you have those kinds of friends? And if you're not, if you don't, let me encourage you to get into a small group or one of our Sunday communities if you're not already in one. Uh, in, the, in the seat backs in front of you, there's a card that looks an awful lot like this. And, and if you are walking alone and you're experiencing hardship and trials and difficulties, but you've not been willing to open yourself up and become vulnerable that somebody else might enter in and walk with you through them, now, 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 please let me encourage you to do so. Let me encourage you to get involved with our amazing communities here at Fellowship Bible Church. On this card on the back, there's some boxes you can check. First look, which is if you're a new visitor, it's a behind-the-scenes tour. Discovery, where you find out more about what we believe. But then community, connecting to community. It says life is better in community. Plug into group life at Fellowship. If you're not in a relationship with someone who can encourage your hands in the Lord, take this card, sign this right now, fill it out. Fill it out. Put it in a box as you're leaving. Bring it to me back in the back afterwards. But let me encourage you to get into relationship with others. These passages in the life of David paint a picture of true friendship. But beyond that, they point us to the friendship of God to us. God desires to be intimate with us. In Proverbs 18, 24, it says, A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. There is a friend that sticks closer to their brother, and we've experienced that. But the best realization and the best experience of that is a relationship that we have through God in Christ. We were created for relationship with God. We were created to be God's friend. Can, can you imagine 
how, how hurt God was when we as His creation betrayed Him. He was vulnerable. He created us in His own image. He, he put us in the midst of paradise. We would come and walk with us in the cool of the day. We were created for intimacy with God, not just for our sakes, but for His as well. Can you wrap your head around that? He desires to be known and to be loved. And we betrayed Him. We betrayed Him. We shook our fist at Him and said, Nah, I want you to be there for me, but I'm not going to be there for you. I don't like your rules. I'm going to do things my way. But so desirous of this relationship is God that even when we turned our backs upon Him, when, when we trod heavily and abused his, his vulnerability, His commitment, His humility, He continued to make Himself vulnerable. He reached out to redeem us through His Son, Jesus Christ. In John 15, Jesus said to His disciples, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Greater love has no man than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. He says, I no longer call you servants, but I call you friends if you obey my commandments. Jesus, second person of Godhead, God himself, says, I will lay down my life for you for the sake of friendship. He's saying, I've got your back. I've got your back. He came and he stripped off his glory that he may lay down his life for you and for me. In Philippians 2, it's a great passage, one of my favorite passages of Scripture, speaking about humility. There's some conflict in the church at Philippi. And Paul's calling them to esteem others as being better than themselves. And he says, let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, who thought it not robbery to be counted equal with God. But he took on the form of a servant and he humbled himself even to the point of death. That's kind of what Jonathan was doing for David. Stripping off his glory in order to elevate David's position. And that's what Jesus did. He stripped off his glory in order to elevate our position. That we might take off our, the robes of our poverty and put on the robes of royalty. Jesus is our Jonathan. He stripped off his glory that he might lay down his, might lay down his life for you and for me. If you've ever been vulnerable and you've ever had a friend that you've been hurt, they've not lived up to your expectation, they weren't there for you when you needed them most, we're going to be really honest, the chances are that you've done the same for them or for others. But not to sound too churchy or too trite, but just to speak the truth, Jesus is that friend who will never let you down. When Jonathan came to David, he took off his robes, but really he was acknowledging, David, you're my superior. I'm submitting to you. That's, that's what we do when we enter into a relationship with God. We, we, we come to God and we say, these robes of mine, I don't, I, I don't these are the robes of, of a failed kingship. 
These robes, this armor, these weapons, they're, 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 they're all, they all relate to my failure as king and leader of my own life. And, and I'm stripping them off. I'm stripping them off and I'm giving them to you. That's how we enter into a relationship with God. If you're here today and you've never, you've never committed yourself, there's that word again, commitment. You've never committed yourself to a relationship with God. You've never let yourself be vulnerable to his love, to be willing to accept his love. To lay down your sword. To move in a relationship with him in humility. Would, would, would you do so this morning? Stop living in rebellion. You failed, just like I failed at being king of my own life. It doesn't work. Strip off those robes of rebellion and give them to him. And acknowledge his kingship, his lordship of your life. Cry out to him, Lord Jesus. Humbly, I submit to your rule and your authority in my life. My way is broken. My way hasn't worked. It's only created pain and suffering. Forgive me for all of my sins. I accept you as my savior, my king, my lord. If you had prayer, prayer like that, God moves from being your enemy to being your friend as well as your sovereign. Would, would you do that this morning? As our musicians come up and prepare to lead us out with worship, at the conclusion of their song, there's going to be elders and Stephen ministers arrayed along the front. And If you would be one that would take off your robe of rebellion, would you, would you come and share that with them? Let them walk with you through that. First time guest, if you're here, I'm going to be back in Guest Central. I'd love to have an opportunity to shake your hand, say hello, welcome you to fellowship. You can do that at the end of the service as well. As we get ready to play, let's finish with a word of prayer. Father, thank you. Thank you, Lord, that despite our betrayal, you continue to extend your love to us that we might be welcomed home. That despite the infidelity of our love, Lord, you seek to call us friend. Your love is overwhelming. You show us what the real power of friendship looks like through the way that you love us. And for that, we are thankful and debtors. And it's in the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.